This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, the homeless situation in Wetaskiwin has been in the news this week. We'll find out from the mayor exactly what is going on there, how it got to this point. We'll also have a discussion about the reopening of the border with the Alberta Tourism Association. And 40% of Canadians have a negative view of Facebook. It's going up and up and up as we learn more and more about the platform and their reluctance or flat out refusal to try and rein in some of the content. All right, so we're going to try to get to the bottom of the situation in Wetaskiwin with uh, the homeless now being in a tent camp uh, in a field as we get into the colder, colder weather. And, uh, you know, where are we going from here? And as I said, the mayor's going to join us after the 9.30 news um, to give us the city's take on this, how we got to this position and where we'll go from here. Right now, we are going to chat with Craig Hovaldson, though, who is the owner of the Rock Soup Greenhouse and Food Bank, who was involved in the second stage of support here. Craig, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having us and uh, allowing us to share this message here. Okay, so from what I understand, it was the emergency shelter was set up downtown. That one was shut down as community uh, members were talking about increased crime and, uh, you know, public unrest or drunkenness or whatever you want to call it. There was problems. So the city decided to shut down that facility. That's when you got involved, correct? Because the next camp was set up uh, adjacent to your food bank? That is correct. So on August 9th, um, the city pulled the zoning on the building. Um, there was no secondary plan for where the people were going to go. Um, our organization here had been doing outreach with the houseless since we started. So on August 9th, people just started showing up here. Um, they just started showing up at Rock Soup knowing that we wouldn't turn them away, knowing that we would just help them. So on August 9th, um, a camp of 22 got set up by our volunteers, and it blossomed to about 55. Okay, so 55 people. Now, let's go back to the emergency shelter. Um, what, were, what were the issues there? As you know, I mean, City Council decided, you say, pull the zoning, shut down the facility. Um, what was the situation surrounding that facility? Um, so much like the situation in Edmonton or, or Calgary, the, the houseless core is downtown. A lot of the services are built around the downtown core. Mm-hmm. Um, so the shelter itself is right in the civic building downtown. Um, you know, the issue is um, the community and, and then the conversation and, and engagement, in my opinion, is, um, you know, the people are always there. And it's just, it became that unsightly NIMBY conversation that just got too far. Okay. So when that building was shut down, they, they moved adjacent to your facility. What was the situation there? Like, what services were they being offered while they were there? So it was right on our property here at Rock Soup, and also I live above the property here with Mike. Um, and so um, the, the, the shelter facility was still able to provide services. So they were doing mobile services here on our site. We were doing um, three meals a day plus snacks, so 55 meals a day, all in accordance with their specific nutritional needs. Um, You know, we had the bathrooms, the showers. Um, There's no, so we would have to pay $2.50 out of our own pocket so they could go use the shower facilities at the local pool. Like nothing of that is happening. Um, 
Now, your facility was shut down. What was the reasoning for that when the city came in and and, um, asked you or told you that you could no longer do what you were doing? Yeah, so they didn't shut down the the food bank. They shut down the the encampment. Um, So we were served and fined um, for not being properly zoned to have the encampment. Um, The biggest thing for us is where are they going to go? And so we appealed it, and then the city came up with this spot behind Walmart. And so once the city had installed the two bathrooms and the garbage facility, um, the campers had no choice but to move. Okay. And um, what were the, the issues that were raised? And was were, were there offers to try and, you know, help your facility or the earlier facility? I mean, did the city get involved and say, okay, these are the problems we're having. This is how we can alleviate some of them. Or was it just, we're shutting it down? Yeah, there was a lot of, like, a lot of talk. Um, but ultimately, it got shut down without a secondary plan. There wasn't, you know, um, an emergency plan. There wasn't a meeting of all the other nonprofits to come in and say how we can rally together to support this. It was just, um, you know, city council voted to close it, and then that was it. And then there was no follow-up plan to where, at that time, there were 75 people living at the hub. And so there was no plan for where they were going to go. Um, so now we're in this situation where we have the tent camp set up behind the Walmart. Um, just describe the situation there because agencies like yours are actually not allowed to be involved or some are and some aren't. How does that break down? Yeah, that's the tricky part is so we're allowed to be able to um, go on site, but we're working so far out of scope here. We, you know, we're a, we're a food bank. We're set up as a self-serve kind of grocery um, food bank. We're not, we're not meant to do this outreach, but the city's, um, not allowing the open door, the shelter facility, from being on site currently. Um, so their business permit was pulled, and they're not able to provide the necessary support. So they have addictions counselors, they have the nurses, doctors, therapists, med delivery, and um, the city's threatening them with fines for entering the encampment or any city property. So the question I have is how we get to this point now. I mean, uh, and I, we'll speak to the mayor in a minute here, but it seems to me that it's being portrayed in some ways as uh, the city just saying, don't do this and don't do this and we're going to shut this down without a plan in place. But was there no involvement in the previous facility or the uh, the facility that you were operating um, to say, okay, here are the problems that you need to address in order to continue doing this. Was there no opportunity or was it just completely shut down? Was there things that you were told you could do at either facility that weren't done that led to this? Uh, and that's the tough part. So for me, it was no, we, the, there was no conversation. It was, you're not allowed this, get these people out of here. Um, but then like, where are they going to go? And the same was for, for the shelter is, you know, you can't, the, the, the expectations were unreasonable um, without without rallying the community support, like expecting a downtown population of vulnerable to, you know, like not be in the streets. And, you know, there's just not the services. There's not the places for them to go. There's just... Um, so when we tried to have the conversation, there was no follow through. You know, we would try and talk about the services that are needed to actually assist this. Um, but... You know, the professional opinions just aren't being carried through, I think. Okay. Um, your, the, the, the camp that was set up at your facility, like you say, you owned the property, so this was all on private property, or was it spilling over into the neighborhood? I mean, is this an industrial area? Is this a residential area? Were there concerns from your neighbors, or was it all pretty much self-contained? Yeah, it's a mixed lot. Um, the majority of the tents were on our property here. 
Um, but of course, like there was 55 people, so there is an adjacent field. And so there were attempts that did spill into the field, no matter how much we tried to pull everybody back onto one side. Okay. Um, as far as the, the neighboring, like there um, are fences behind, and we tried really hard to like go out and clean up garbage. Um, camp was really settled when they were here. Like I said, I live above the building. Yeah. My children were a big part in like helping set up the tents and getting to know. We had a lot of seniors here. Um, so it was very calm, very respectful. Um, you know, bedtime was at 11. Um, I don't provide 24-hour support from a food bank, so camp would settle at 11. It was just very respectful. Everybody was so, um, you know, helpful. The campers, you know, would take care of each other and clean up, and it was beautiful. Obviously, that wouldn't have been a long-term solution anyway, right? I mean, there has to be some sort of a long-term solution put in place here. I mean, tents don't work, you know, very, very quickly here. It's not going to be an option. No, as as part of my fundraiser to start this, I slept in a tent for two months outside um, mm-hmm. over over um, over the winter, and so I like there's no stopping a wind, no. um, and so people people need housing, people need services. Um, this lack of service, this you know, they're in a desert, being prevented access from medical professionals. Like this is this is not okay. Um, not only are tents not a solution, you know, this is teetering on a human rights crisis right now. Like preventing access to medical, um, you know, people aren't getting their meds right now. People aren't getting to see their addiction therapists. Um, You know, it's really cold out. Sure, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's life and death. Uh, Craig, I I really appreciate you taking the time to provide your perspective on this situation. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us and uh, taking the time for us. Yes, thank you. Huge fan of your show, and, you know, um, thank you for allowing this conversation to take place. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much. Um, that is Craig Hovaldson, who is owner of the Rock Soup Greenhouse and Food Bank in Wetaskiwin, and it was his facility that was sort of um, facilitating, I guess, the second emergency shelter in Wetaskiwin. The first one downtown was shut down, and when it was shut down, um, the people moved to the food bank and set up the camp there. Ultimately, that was shut down as well. Now, I'm seeing your text from people saying, this isn't true. There was problems, all kinds of things going on. I fully understand that there are two sides to every story, and there are different viewpoints and there are different perspectives. That is why, coming up after the 9.30 news, I've invited the mayor to come on, and he has graciously accepted, and I really appreciate it. Because, yes, of course, this is a very, very complex issue, and it's seen in different ways from different people. So I want to get the explanation from Mayor Tyler Gandam as to how we got to this position, what the plan is going forward. And I know that homelessness in Wetaskiwin has been an issue before, has been for years. It's been an issue in every community. You take a look at what happened in the city of Edmonton last year with massive tent camps, and they had to open up the convention center, and they were busing them to Commonwealth Stadium. It's not an easy situation to handle, especially with our climate. So I fully understand that there are two sides to this story. We've got one side. And what we try and do is bring on the other side. So we're going to take a break for the 930 News. And when we come back, we will have the mayor of Wetaskiwin join us. Because you're right. We're hearing one side of the story. There is another side. And we want to bring you the full story, get the details on how we got here, where we're going. So we're going to have that chat when we come back after the 930 News. All right, continuing with our discussion about the situation in Wetaskiwin. And as I said, there's two sides to every story. And... Um, you know, I'm seeing the text that we're getting. Uh, this one, you know, the residents of the area around Rock Soup were vandalized and robbed, etc. I was part of a group that took a petition to council to have those tents moved. 
Our council listened to our concerns at an open mic, and along with uh, the petition, they did their due diligence for the citizens of Wetaskiwin. Okay, so obviously it's not as clear-cut as it might seem uh, in some of the stories that we've read. So I am really happy that we have Tyler Gandam joining us now, the mayor of Wetaskiwin. Um, Mayor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for the opportunity. So hopefully we can get a little clarity here on how we got into this situation. Let's go back to the emergency shelter that was set up in the Civic Building. Um, sure. The issues around that, why did the city decide to shut down that that facility? So we had, uh, back in November, we had uh, started working with an agency out of Camrose to establish programming for mental health and addictions that also had a shelter component to it. So it was going really, really well uh, in the beginning Crime overall in the city was going down. Our vulnerable population was being looked after. Uh, they were able to work with AHS, have undiagnosed medical needs looked after. Medications were being managed. Um, identification and, and just being able to help the vulnerable population um, kind of sort things out as they work through the, the addictions and the mental health that they've been struggling with for, for decades. So it was going really, really well, especially during the winter. Um, people weren't outside when it's 35 below sure. outside. That's probably not where you're going to be. Uh, once spring hit, we saw a large increase to the number of people utilizing the shelter in and around the hub. So that includes our downtown area. Uh, we noticed an increase in crime in the area. Residents and businesses didn't feel safe downtown. Um, open consumption of alcohol, open drug use. Um, all of these things were going on in and around, I shouldn't say in, around the hub and the shelter. Um, and it was concerning to not only the community, but to council as well. So we were trying to work with the open door, trying to have some operational changes done so that um, the issues that we were having outside of the hub didn't overshadow the good that was being done inside the shelter, along with the programming and the partnerships that they had been able to establish uh, with Musquachis, Mobile Mental Health, AHS, all of the other agencies that they were able to work with. Uh, Tyler, we you weren't able... Sorry, sorry just, we, we weren't get, able to... Yeah, but, go ahead. I just wanted to say that that's part of the question I had because the reporting I've seen sort of portrays this as the city just pulled it. That's it. We shut it down. I imagine there was some consultation. There was some discussion. There was, these are the problems we're having. We need to address them. That Absolutely. didn't happen. It, it did happen. We did. The, the changes didn't happen. The conversations happened. Okay. So the city, while, while we were um, getting the complaints of the issues of everything going in or sorry, around the hub, around the civic building, uh, the city hired a private security company to to be in the area to try to bring that level of safety back to the downtown. So we were trying different things to get it to work, and it just wasn't working. The All of the good work that was happening with the open door and with the hub um, didn't make up for all of the things that were going on and spilling outside of the building, and which was creating a, a bigger problem for our community in our downtown. Okay, so you made the decision to close that facility. Um, what was the plan at that point? There wasn't a plan. And that's one of the things that um, I was disappointed in. So the will of council is obviously the majority sets the direction. Uh, I voted against closing the hub because we didn't have a plan B or an alternative location to go. Um, Council voted to close it. So the open door was given the 90 days termination notice of the lease agreement. And we continued working. So while even while the hub was operational, even before we had terminated the lease with them, um, the city with the open door, with a bunch of other agencies, with the provincial government, with uh, leadership from Muskochees had been looking and working on trying to find an alternative solution to the 
hub being set up in the Civic Building. Nobody ever thought that that was a good location for it. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to find another location for it, and we had been actively working on that from the very beginning. Okay, and you just you just ran out of time, and something had to be done before you came up with a plan. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay, so now they moved to the new setup outside of the food bank. Um, what was the situation there? To hear Craig tell it, um, it sounds idyllic, very peaceful. It was beautiful. People getting along with each other, everything going well. I'm seeing a lot of texts from residents of Wetaskiwin saying, yeah, not even close. No, it's, and it wasn't like that at all. And I listened to the interview beforehand. Uh, Craig and I have a history of me correcting a lot of the misinformation that he likes to share. Uh, one of the things was is that he said they just showed up at his property. He had openly invited and was advertising through his social media outlets um, looking for tents. So this was a plan that they had in place before the lease had expired um, with the civic building and the open door. So this was pre-planned and this was in the works before um, there wasn't, which was is, is neither here nor there. Having an alternative solution or an alternative location <clears throat> is definitely a priority. So that's fine. Um, the, the comment that it may have spilled over into an adjacent property is probably selling it a little bit short. They were well into the property to the north of Rock Soups. The city and the RCMP and our city CPOs had gone to them and said, you're trespassing. We had uh, complaints from the owner of that property saying they didn't want them on their property and they flat out refused to move. So they were now trespassing. Okay. They didn't have zoning to set up an encampment on Rock Soup's pro- uh, property. A compliance order was issued to Rock Soup. Uh, they ignored it and then they appealed it. Um, all the while, the city is still trying to find an alternative location. The city owns property in behind Walmart. So we were able to get that leveled out, gravel put down, a large industrial fire pit put out there, garbage cans, um, washrooms, everything that, uh, for, I shouldn't say everything, trying to meet as many of the needs as we possibly could for the vulnerable population and those experiencing homelessness that, that we possibly could. So once we had that set up through the help of the RCMP and our city peace officers, we were able to get the encampment moved. So I, Craig had said there was something like 50 or 60 tents there and 75 or I don't know what the total number of people staying on his property were. We're now we're at about 20, 25 people that are staying at the encampment that the city had set up. So while the entire thing is less than ideal, um, one of the other comments that was made was AHS condemning the city um, for not providing... Uh, yeah, saying that you weren't meeting needs. the yeah. basic requirements of public housing. So, so a, uh, a statement like that from, from an agency who is responsible for looking after basic human needs, the city doesn't have a minister of um, health. The, the city doesn't have a minister of mental health and addictions. We're doing everything that we possibly can within our ability and within the ability of our means too. Like funding is mm-hmm. doesn't just just pop into the city's coffers to say here, let's look after this decades old issue. So anonymously or whoever made the comment from AHS saying that we're not meeting the needs of the vulnerable population, then by all means come in and, and give us a hand with it or continue giving us a hand with it. And I don't want to make it sound like AHS hasn't been here helping the vulnerable population. But to flip it back and say that we're not meeting the basic human needs is, I don't think is, is fair to, to municipality that for the last three years, since February of 2019, has been trying to do everything that we can to provide shelter and the basic human needs for a vulnerable population that had been ignored for decades. Um, there's been comments of the city providing cattle shelters in a field 
uh, in the summer, probably in 2018. 2018, that was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so what I find really frustrating with that is is that all of these people who had concerns about how inhumane a cattle shelter were sure didn't care when they were sleeping under the bushes or out in the field or live, left to their, to their own means in the field without any kind of shelter whatsoever. The city provided some fire pits for some warmth. I, granted, it was still the summertime. But shelter from the elements, whether it's the sun, wind, uh, rain, anything else like that, we're trying to do as much as we can with the means that we have available. So I've been a funeral director in the city for going on 17 years. I'm a captain with our fire service for 20 years. I've been working with um, doing removals of people who have passed away from the elements for a long time. And for somebody to to say that what we're doing is inhumane is a pretty fair statement as well, not knowing the history of everything that's been going on in the city. The amount of drug overdoses and Narcan and CPR that I've done in the last three years, let alone the last 20, would rival any per capita big city in North America. We are struggling. We are struggling. We have a huge issue. And unless we've got all orders of government, federal, provincial, and municipal, as well as the agencies that go along with it, we're not going to be able to solve any of these issues. I think you make, missing- a, you make a really good point there, Tyler. It, it, it can't be just your community. Like, like you say, no. Musquachis has to be involved. The province has to be involved. Can you hang on for one quick second, then we'll come back yep. and continue? Okay. Uh, we'll take a quick break and be back with uh, Mayor of Otasco and Tyler Gandam right after this. And we're chatting with uh, the mayor of Wetaskiwin, Tyler Gandam, trying to get a handle on exactly what's going on with the homeless population in that community. And I think we're getting a little more clarity around it. Uh, so thank you to the mayor for uh, joining us this morning. Um, mayor, I guess the focus needs to be here, how we move forward. And and I think you make a really, really good point that um, a lot of people pointing fingers at Wetaskiwin City Council. We know there are other communities very close to Wetaskiwin that certainly are part of this situation. The provincial government has a role to play. So have those discussions happened? I know you've had meetings with leaders from Muscochise before uh, to try and get a handle on this, and they've been involved. Do those continue? They do, yep. Um, I, and I continue to meet with ministers with the provincial government as well. They've been very supportive in, in trying to work to find a solution for Wetaskiwin. One of the biggest hurdles that we're facing right now is the funding for the warming shelter. I had a meeting in August with a minister and another uh, leader of an, an agency or an organization where funding was all but guaranteed at that time so that we could set up the warming shelter while we continue to find a longer-term solution for the community. Um, so far, the uh, the province has confirmed the funding. Um, the city has confirmed funding through a grant that we received from the provincial government earlier last or late last year, sorry. And I'm just waiting for confirmation on funding from the other agency or the other organization that had assured me that there was funding available. So while this isn't happening as quickly as I had hoped or as it should have, um, we are still exhausting every resource that we possibly can to find the solution or to find the funding to make sure that we've got that warming shelter in place before the winter hits. Yeah, I mean, do you have a timeline? Do you know? I mean, it's pretty chilly out there already. And, and like you yeah. say, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's quick. The quicker, the better. Um, do you have a timeline in place? And what might it be? Where might it be? Uh, it'll be in the same area that it's at right now. We're looking at um, uh, repurposing some of the camps that they used for the Olympic Games in Vancouver. They were used for... Um, isolation shelters when COVID was kind of just starting out. Uh, we've got we've got a line on those. All like I said, what we're waiting for is the funding, the confirmation of the funding. 
Um, so what are we talking about? Like ACO trailers, that kind of thing? Is that what it yeah. is? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if they're ACO specific, but yeah, something very similar. Uh, so that's the temporary fix, which uh, yeah. will be very, very welcome, uh, no doubt. But like you say, you know, the emergency shelter was shed, uh, set up and then shut down with, without a plan for replacement in place. It seems like a long-term plan needs to be um, come up with here. Uh, what kind of work is being done on that and who's involved? The city, AHS, we've got a number of agencies involved with this to try to make this happen so that it's not just the city unilaterally making decisions or trying to find solutions on issues that we are just barely scratching the surface on. We don't have the expertise. To, we don't know what's needed. We don't know what um, what is going to work best for the vulnerable population. And so we continue to work with the other agencies. That includes AHS, the provincial government, um, I've had a good working relationship with Indigenous services, with the federal government, through uh, my my con or my our member of par- parliament, Mike Lake, has set that up as well. So it's again, it's not happening as quickly as it could or as as it should, but it's happening as quickly as we can make it happen with the resources that we have. Have you got all those people in a room? I mean, have all the you know, like Muscatees, yourself, the province, the feds? Has, have you had an opportunity to get everybody in a room and say we got to get to work on this? Not. Not the feds, but definitely Muskwachis, uh, AHS, and the committee that the city has set up. Gotcha. You talk about the expertise and the ability and, you know, and the programming and things like that. When we're talking about the open door group that was involved, that um, according to the reporting that we talked about earlier, say they really want to be involved and they're leaning over fences to help, but they'll be charged with trespassing if they come in. What's the relationship there? Why are they going to be charged with trespassing if they go in and try and offer services to the people in the camp uh, behind the Walmart right now? When, and I don't, uh, I don't agree with how everything is unfolding as it is as it's going right now. The uh, the, the relationship is broken between the city and the Open Door. Okay. Uh, that stems back from the operations at the hub through the Civic Building and us trying to find a common ground there where we didn't feel um, we didn't feel like we were heard. So now, while we're trying to protect the rest of the community um, from things that were going on around the Civic Building, that the Open Door publicly said that they had no responsibility for, we need to make sure that the rest of the community is being looked after as well. So we had uh, a permit set up through our, we had a legal opinion permit set up through our vendor program or vendor permitting with the city to get a permit done up so that we can find out where the open door is going to be working for how long, what are they going to be offering for services? And then if we needed to increase patrols with RCMP, if we needed to hire security, if we needed to set up garbage cans, if we needed to set up washrooms, because the downtown was being used as a public urinal and people were defecating all over the place. If we didn't have that ability while they were working someplace else in the city, we're now doing the rest of the community a disservice by letting an agency operate who didn't look after the issues that we had going on outside the civic building to begin with. So again, while I don't agree with the way that things are unfolding, I made a motion to add the permitting issue to our September 27th council meeting and it was defeated by council. So this is a great example of, and while I totally appreciate the mayor as a spokesperson for the, the city, um, I can't by myself make yep. changes to how things are operating. And I think that's the expectation right now is that things aren't going well, so it's my fault, which is fine. I know that in my heart and, and when I'm done working for the day and I know that all the things that I've done to try to change the situation here, I know that I'm doing everything that I can. It's just really unfair that I'm being blamed for things that all of council are doing um, or the majority of council are doing to not move this forward sometimes. And it's a little bit frustrating for me 
when council won't even have a conversation on the permitting issue that we're having where the vulnerable population isn't being looked after and we can't find or settle an agreement with council let alone with an outside agency so i do agree that we need to be doing something differently i can't by myself direct administration to do something differently i need the rest of council i need the majority of council to at least have that conversation and they're not willing to Interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're one vote on council, just like any other mayor. Uh, and yeah, you are the figurehead. So I, I really do appreciate you coming in here and answering the questions. Um, uh, last one before I let you go here. Um, as you said, it's not happening as quickly as you want. How optimistic are you? Or can, can you make any promises that those warming shelters, that there will be something in place? I would say we need it now. Um, but um, h- how close is that? And are you confident those will be in place soon? Uh, as soon as I get that last piece of funding, it's it's done. And again, I can't speak for the agency or the organization that uh, hasn't confirmed the funding with me. I've, I've reached out a number of times and I'll continue to reach out to make sure that they understand the importance of this. And that's not the only thing that the city is hinging what's going on or what's going to happen with those warming shelters. We're also working on a plan B and a plan C to try to make sure that those are in place as well. But again, we're we're a city of 13,000 people that doesn't have the means to just throw $750,000 or a million dollars at something for a, a temporary fix or, or something to work with within our community. We need partners at the table that are willing to help out both financially and with their expertise. Um, Mayor, thank you so much to your to- uh, for your time today. I appreciate you coming on and uh, giving the other side of this story. And it, it is such a complex issue. Uh, we could probably talk about it for hours, but I appreciate your time. Yeah, and I just, one thing I want to clear up before we move on here is that while I'm not uh, minimizing anybody passing away or has died in the city, whether it's from a drug overdose or an undiagnosed or an untreated uh, medical need, not one person has died in that encampment since it was opened. So the news saying that there was, or four, the rumor that four had died in that encampment is completely untrue. I will not argue that there was probably four deaths as a result of our vulnerable population, whether it was an overdose, uh, an untreated medical need, or any other reason that a person might pass away. It is not because help was not available in that encampment. Somebody did not die in that encampment. Okay. Um, Mayor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time, Shay. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. That is um, Tyler Gandam, who is the mayor of Wetaskiwin, and you can hear it uh, in... um, his answers to the question. He's feeling the pressure. There has been a lot of reporting. Uh, and if you read the stories, um, the one thing that struck me in reading those stories is there's there's no comment from the people who manage the city, including the mayor. Um, this is all being told from one side. And uh, I'm sure there's other, you know, when you talk about a situation like homelessness, is there anything more complex? There's there are no easy answers. And when you take a look at Wetaskiwin and all the different, you know, regional considerations that are involved, and as the mayor said, this is a town of 13,000 people, you know, so he's he's got the province on board. He's working with the feds. He, he's working with Musquachis. It's complex. Um, that does not excuse the fact that the situation that's in Wetaskiwin right now, to me, is completely and totally unacceptable. People living in tents behind the Walmart um, and in hearing from the mayor, he doesn't think it's acceptable either. Um, but as he said, that's the Council of Wetaskiwin making votes the way that they have that have led us to this situation. He's just one vote. He can't come out and, you know, unilaterally dictate this is what's going to happen. Sounds like he's got a lot of balls in the air uh, and he's doing what he can. So I appreciate him uh, coming on and, and sharing that 
that viewpoint um, because everybody's got a different viewpoint and it's a very, very complex issue. So uh, hopefully we have a little more clarity at the end of this hour than we did at the beginning of this hour. And we'll continue to follow up on the story. The other people in town who have family across the border, uh, uh, obviously acquaintances on the other side that they haven't seen for that length of time are really looking forward to reestablishing those connections and actually being able to hug somebody and, and that kind of thing. So it's very important for the people in town. Since 1890, there's been an establishment here, you know, on the border between the, t- the two communities of Coots and Sweetgrass, and that has been cut off for 19 months. So it's going to be it's going to be a big deal. That is Jim Willett, who is mayor of Coots, Alberta, talking uh, about the border plan to reopen that was announced by the U.S. government um, earlier this week. They will be reopening the border sometime early next month. We're still waiting for a final date, and there are still some details that remain to be worked out. However, um, it's a positive step. I think uh, it's something that a lot of people have been waiting a long time for. Joining us now to talk about the impact this might have is Darren Reeder, who is the head of the Alberta Tourism Industry Association. Uh, Darren, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. You know, I mean, you're talking about people traveling into Alberta and people traveling into Canada as the Tourism Association uh, representative in Alberta. But, you know what, just having that border open going both ways will make a difference, right? I mean, this is positive, positive news. Well, absolutely. You know what, uh, as the old Chinese proverb goes, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And uh, this is a series of steps. It isn't just going to be one thing that returns us to the normal pattern we had seen with travel pre-COVID. So this is a very important step. And you know what, uh, uh, the U.S. government decision to reopen land borders and ferry ports for Canadian travelers that are fully vaccinated is a sign that things may be slowly returning to some normalcy. And this is good for travel. Yeah, I mean, it just, I think it's, it's almost a perception, right? It's almost it, whether or not it makes a difference to, you know, us being able to uh, do what we do and people coming into this province. You know, I'm talking about the tourism sector. It's just the perception that we're getting back to the way things used to be that will make a big difference. Yeah, 100%. But you know what? With that, I would add an air of caution. And that is, you know, like we've seen in B.C. with the Victoria Clippers decision in recent days to suspend ferry service until next spring uh, because of continuing marine border entry requirements. Yeah. It's a reminder that the border has thickened during the pandemic. So what we really need to do is return to an efficient and a predictable way for visitors to cross the border as soon as possible. It's key for the recovery of our sector and, of course, for rebuilding our labor force. And, you know, one of the things I would throw out there that we've said uh, throughout this uh, crisis is that uh, we need to assert that fully vaccinated should mean fully vaccinated travelers and that the various interpretations of the efficacy of mixed doses of WHO-approved vaccines is not assisting with the return to travel. Double vaccinated should mean double vaccinated. And it's problematic, you know, from a travel uh, perspective, when we look at the messaging uh, that the U.S. won't require double vaccinated travelers to provide a negative COVID test to gain entry to the U.S., but Canada on the reciprocating end will. Uh, That sends mixed messages to travelers, does not uh, assist with the effective and confident rebound to travel decisions. No, I think you're absolutely right, Darren. It would be so simple for travelers if they just said, okay, if you're double vaccinated, you're double vaccinated and that's it. You don't need a negative test no matter which way you're going. Um, 
do you are you optimistic that with the pressure from groups like yours, and I know several chambers are now pushing for this, and uh, business organizations across the country are really saying this is something that needs to happen, are you optimistic we will get there to a point where it's just one system, we're all operating under the same rules, and it makes it that much easier? Well, I'm hoping so. You know, one of our national messages is we do need a nationalized approach to a proof of vaccination system. So I think some of us have been stumbling through the dark uh, with no disrespect to the efforts of the different provinces and territories. But we need to have a more nationally integrated approach. I think that's part of signaling to the international market that we have our act together, that we are ready to receive people. So there's some work to be done. There's no doubt about it. But again, you know, decisions like the U.S. land decision is another step of moving confidently towards some sense of norm normal. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, with, with the restrictions still in place, with the Canadian government saying, okay, you can travel into the U.S., we know that, and the U.S. says you don't need a negative test, you just have to be double vaccinated. You know, when you're talking about border communities, and a lot of these people travel over for day trips or whatever the case may be, still needing that negative test result when you come back, that has to be a major factor in, in complicating things and making it uh, not as easy as it could be, right? Is that something that you're really focused on right now? Well, you know, it's certainly a consideration. I mean, if, if you have 72 hours in which to do your business and you're delayed on, on the other side of the border for whatever reason, uh, that's problematic for coming back in. But, you know, if, if I could just speak at it from a perspective of what's important to us, which is inbound travel into yeah. Canada, uh, you know, th- this idea of uh, unimpeded movement of visitors is key to returning to pre-COVID levels. But the reality is, and th- this is a hard reality for Alberta, which is we're landlocked. And we're heavily reliant on efficient air routes and the recovery of domestic and international air recovery routes to really bring people in in volume. So we're not expecting, as a result of you know the decision, a floodgate of visitor activity out of the U.S. drive markets, both because many are too far away to drive to key Alberta yep. destinations, but we're also at a time, let's be frank, we're at a time of year where inbound U.S. leisure traffic would normally be quite limited. Um, so these are trips, if people are driving from their vehicles, are making those decisions many months in advance. Now, that's not to take away from people that are looking for these opportunities to reunite with family members, to come up and visit some of their vacant, uh, maybe uh, uh, properties that they have up in Canada. We will see some transborder traffic for reasons like that. But the idea that this would usher in a whole floodgate of travelers that have had pent-up demand to come, it just doesn't come at the right time of the year for that to be possible. And again, it just it speaks to the fact that Alberta really is dependent on air capacity. How are we seeing things roll out in the Alberta tourism sector? I know the summer of, what was it, 2020 was dismal. It was, I mean, everything was basically shut down. Um, 2021, things were a little bit better, certainly in our province for the summer of 2021. What's the climate right now like for the tourism industry in Alberta? I think it's mixed. It depends on who you talk to. I mean, I think our resort uh, mountain properties uh, would have a slightly different perspective than you might if you went to downtown Calgary or downtown Edmonton that are far more dependent on conventions, festivals, corporate travel, uh, large-scale events. You know, those types of activities have not rebounded yet. They're a long way from recovering. So I think, you know what, it would be fair to say that 2021 was a bit more optimistic for some of those more resort-orientated destinations within Alberta, but we have a long way to go, and there's simply no way to get to above the waterline for a lot of businesses without the contribution of international corporate and leisure travel. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, slowly but surely, we seem to be moving in that direction. But like you say, um, unfortunately, it's happening at the wrong time of the year for our province. But I guess any progress is progress and we'll take it, right? Eventually, we'll get to where we need to be. 
Well, 100%. And you know what? This just speaks to both at a provincial but a federal level. There's a need for enduring financial support to make sure that the hardest hit businesses and tourism are extended with assistance through to the next spring at a minimum. Uh, there are just many businesses that are teetering on the edge right yeah. now. In 2021, let's be clear, you know, the U.S. and the international borders open to air travel again. But it came too late in the year for it to be of any consequential difference for operators. It was another missed summer. So we need to position this machine for recovery in 2022. Government has been invested in this process to date. They need to continue uh, to give those clear signals to the market right through till next spring. And then we'll hope for a better 2022. Excellent. Thank you so much for uh, your time this morning, Darren. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That is Darren Reeder with the Alberta Tourism Association talking about what the announcement of the opening of the border means. Um, I mean, it doesn't really affect us directly in terms of tourism in our country because it's going the other way. This means that Canadians will now be able to cross the U.S. border. Uh, Americans have been able to cross the Canadian border for some time. Um, So now it's the, okay, what's the next thing that we need to deal with? What's the next situation? And if you're traveling into the United States, you know, part of the concern that a lot of people have is the mixed doses. The U.S. has come out and said, we will um, recognize all WHO-approved vaccines. Originally, they had said only CDC, which meant no AstraZeneca, which had a lot of Canadians uh, really upset because a lot of Canadians took AstraZeneca. Um, And then they said, okay, now we're going to accept WHO, so AstraZeneca's good. But... They still haven't come out and said anything about mixed doses. Because as you know, a lot of people in this country got AstraZeneca for a first dose and then were switched over to Pfizer or Moderna for a second dose. So you're in that mixed dose category. And the United States has not come out yet and said, this is how we'll handle that. And the other issue that was raised immediately by a number of groups, as I said, right across the country is, okay, why are we still doing the negative test results to come back into Canada? The U.S. doesn't require it. If you're going to travel into the United States and you're double vaccinated and you can verify that, you're good to go. End of story. So if you're going to go and travel to the United States and then you want to come back, you're still going to need the negative test result. And if you're in one of those communities where, you know, that cross-border day trip shopping or things like that is an issue, um, they're saying this doesn't really help us. Point Roberts, B.C., for example... Um, which is uh, in Washington State, small town. You can only get there through Vancouver. Um, And uh, they're saying, you know what, we're in a situation where this whole testing requirement really doesn't change things for us. Now, if those people are still required by government of Canada to not only be vaccinated, which we fully support, uh, but be tested again going home, that's going to limit the number of people we get. So that's a concern of ours. We are a totally unique place, and we think we, we deserve to be treated uniquely in that regard. That's Brian Calder, the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. So there's all these, you know, every different town, every different chamber, every different business group, tourist association, all these different groups have different specific requests and demands. And basically what it comes down to is, Let's make it as easy as possible and as uniform as possible because there's so many things that are still up in the air. And, you know, as we've talked about before, coming out of this whole pandemic situation, I think that should be our expectation. There's going to be bumps in the road. It's going to be a process. Eventually we'll get there. Um, But our patience has been tested (laughs) all the way along. So I understand the frustration. We're going to get an update on what's going on with Facebook. They're going through some things over at Facebook, uh, no doubt about it. The social media giant, which has pretty much half the world's population signed up as users, 
uh, has seen just one negative story after another recently, and its reputation as, um, you know, overall uh, has taken a hit, for sure. Uh, a genuinely destructive force on society is now the reputation that Facebook is carrying around in the minds of a lot of people. Now, a lot of people have felt that way for a very long time, but the whistleblower testimony and the things that followed from that have sort of cemented it for a lot of people that, okay, this is what's going on with Facebook and and Instagram, and this is the negative impact that it's having. Now, here in Canada, pollsters did some work around Facebook. 40% of Canadians tell pollsters they have a negative view of Facebook, and half of Canadians say there needs to be some form of regulation around the social media platform. So uh, the support is there to, people are starting to recognize that, you know what, we need to do some thinking about how powerful this platform is. To give us a little more insight into the situation surrounding Facebook, we're joined now by Sun Ha Hong, who's an associate professor uh, at the School of Communication in Simon Fraser University. Professor, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Hi there, good to be here. You know, obviously not good times um, for Facebook. I, you know, as I said, I think there's always been a lot of people who have felt strongly about Facebook and, and the negative effects that it's having. But the whistleblower expose in the last couple of weeks seems to have really increased the awareness among the general public. People are paying more attention. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. And this has been coming for a long time, as you say, because just because we use Facebook doesn't mean that we love it, right? A lot of people use it because they have no other choice. They're very reluctant. And we have had such a long series of uh, leaks and damning revelations over the last few years. And you know what? We're going to continue to get more. So this is only going to get worse. And I, you know, I think the change in perception has been a lot of people have always said, yeah, there's a lot of horrible stuff. There's a lot of nonsense on Facebook, whatever. I just move past it to the point now saying, yeah, there's a lot of nonsense on Facebook. And it's really messing up our societies, our democracies. It's spreading hate. They're realizing it's having a very real world impact. Yeah, we're seeing that through some of the election misinformation around the world. We're seeing that with what's going on with COVID. And, you know, I think a lot of people, they see it happen a couple of times and say, well, bad things happen everywhere. Let's not jump to conclusions. Um, But then people get to a point where they start to notice a pattern, right? And with Facebook, this is the pattern that defines the company. It is one piece of misinformation, one crisis after another. So I think, what's changed, do you think, in terms of, because like you say, the knowledge has been out there. We've always known there's a lot of misinformation and nonsense and, and stuff like that on Facebook. Is it because now we've been told that, well, Facebook knows it too, and they know the effect that it has, and they still choose to do nothing about it? Does that tip the scale for some people? I think one of the things is that you just need time to get something to have a gradual shift in how people think about things because we're all very, very busy, right? We've got our own lives to live and it's hard to keep up with all the little drip drip of pieces of information unless you're studying it for your, uh, unless it's your job to study these things. Um, and I think what's been happening is this is something we've seen with a lot of other companies, a lot of other things. If you look at smoking, we've known for a long, long time that smoking is actually harmful, but it still took decades for a lot of people to really come around to how harmful it is, partly because the tobacco companies spent so much money trying to stop the research and the news from getting out there. And that's exactly what Facebook is continuing to do. What do you anticipate is in the future for Facebook with this all this focus on, you know, the, the the negative aspects of Facebook. What do you anticipate happening in the future with that company? Well, 
I can't tell the future, but I can tell you what's going on right now in okay. preparation for that future, right? And and what the companies are doing is they have been spending so much money on lobbying the U.S. government and other governments elsewhere, and they know what's coming, right? They know that the Wild West days are happening, and they are going to have to be regulated and put under scrutiny, just like every other industry on the planet. And what they're trying to do now is forestall that. So, for example, you're going to hear a lot of talk in the coming years from the tech giant saying, oh, China is the problem. This is the West versus China. You cannot regulate us because then China will win the AI race. They won't really explain to you what the AI race is. They'll just say vague things about killer robots, um, as if Facebook will help us stop that. Um, and that's the rhetoric that we are already starting to see, right, from people like Eric Schmidt, um, the former head of Google. So you're going to see this idea that they have to be protected and they cannot be held accountable because otherwise we're going to lose some amorphous AI race. Um, and that's just going to be one of the ways in which they're going to try and protect themselves. Now, they say they're open to regulation of some kind. So we'll get back to that, you know, liability issue in a second. But first of all, they're not closing the door on regulation. They're actually saying to governments around the world, we're interested in regulation. Tell us what regulation you want. Give us something to work with, right? Yeah, and, and there's there's two kinds of things they're playing with here. So on one hand, sometimes when they can get away with it, they'll say, we don't want regulation. But then when the pressure gets too big, you're right, they'll start to say, oh, actually, yeah. we love regulation. And that is the thing Facebook says. And what they mean by that is we like regulation when it suits us. Um, and sometimes that means they want to be the ones writing it. Um, and that's what Eric Schmidt has been doing in the U.S. government after he's left Google. He now has the U.S. Um, um, AI Commission, and he's basically advising them on what kind of laws they should, they should write. And the other thing that they love there is they love pulling up the ladder behind them. Facebook is so big now, you cannot get away from them. They are so rich. They are swimming in cash. And so they are happy with some regulation if it, if, when they have the resources to work with it. But some of the smaller companies or the newer companies might really struggle with that. So all they care about at this point is that they are top dog on the market and they want to stay there. And so they're going to push for regulation that makes it easier for them. And regulation that won't affect them in a way that is meaningful, I think. Now, Facebook enjoy, and, and all the social media platforms enjoy this area that, for example, I don't. And the radio station I work for and television stations and newspapers don't work for where they can just say, well, we didn't say anything libelous or damaging. That wasn't us. It was just somebody on our platform. Now, if somebody in my business said that, it doesn't matter if we put somebody onto our platform who says something libelous or slanderous. We are held accountable for that. Facebook gets a pass on that. And I think that's what a lot of people are saying the problem is. Yeah, and this has been their uh, their their rationale for a very long time, which yeah. is we just provide the platform, and and you know if terrible things happen there, then how were we supposed to know? And you know people sort of went along with it when these things were pretty new, and they seemed like a small company. They are one of the biggest companies in the world now. They're one of the most rich and powerful. So if, if they tell us that they cannot stop some of the flagrant incitement to violence and hate speech on there, I would say that it's a question you know, basic competence, right? How bad do you have to be at your job that your platform is full of this stuff and you, you just say you cannot stop it? So I think the public, a lot of people are now thinking that just doesn't make sense. You guys are so rich and powerful. 
you should be able to do a better job. Sure, and not only rich and powerful, but when you talk about an information source, they're the biggest. They are, I mean, basically half the world's population is on Facebook. There's nobody else with an audience like that. Absolutely. Um, We talk about other platforms like Twitter, but, you know, the Twitter user base, for example, it's big, but it's minuscule compared to Facebook. And what we have to remember is someone like me, I can just say, screw Facebook, I won't use it, and it won't be too much of a big deal. Um, but if I'm a small business and I might be dependent on Facebook for, for reaching people out there, um, it, depending on what country you're in around the world, Facebook means the Internet. And that's just the way everybody connects to each other, sells things. So when we had that Facebook outage uh, a few days ago, one of the things that happened is some of us just shrugged. But other people around the world, it was like the Internet was down, their business was down, they mm-hmm. couldn't get anything done. Um, so that's the kind of dependency that we have on Facebook, um, and that means a certain level of responsibility. Yeah, and you, you make a great point because, you know, in the poll that I mentioned earlier where, you know, half of Canadians have a negative view of Facebook, um, three-quarters of Canadians say, but it helps me stay in touch with my family and friends. So so they're conflicted because there are good parts of Facebook, and we have become in many ways utterly dependent on the platform. Well, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and there's always there's always two sides to that, right? But, I mean, Facebook often says, but we do, we do all these good things. We are also very useful for people. And we say, well, fossil fuels are very, very useful for people. But that doesn't mean that uh, we should just not regulate them. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's interesting. And so do you think we'll actually come to a point where governments need to be brought in? I mean, Facebook has shown they have no interest in self-regulation. Uh, will it come down to government actually having to step in and say, okay, these are some of the rules that you need to operate under now? Um, I think we are definitely at that point yeah. where quite a lot of politicians in the U.S. and around the world want to do it. Um, but it is obviously difficult because, you know, how do you have national governments reach out and do international regulation? And how do you actually enforce it, right? So Facebook will claim they do something. They'll say, oh, we cut down on 80% of this information this month. But they won't tell you the actual numbers. They won't show you anything. So you're just supposed to believe them. And, you know, if you know that you cut down 80%, why are you leaving the other 20%? So they <laughs> give you these nonsense numbers. Um, and I think the governments are going to have a very tough time trying to hold them accountable. But we are starting to see early signs that the governments are really taking it seriously. Yeah, interesting times for sure. Um, Sunha, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. That is Sun Ha Hong, who is an associate professor at the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University. And he's right. I mean, if nothing else, what's gone on with this whistleblower situation surrounding Facebook is uh, I think it's changed the level of awareness that a lot of people have. And ultimately, um, people have, you know, I mean, delete Facebook trends whenever one of these stories comes up. But it has for years and it's still got over three billion daily users. So um, they're not hurting in terms of subscriptions. But at the same time, I think more and people learn more about, you know, exactly how Facebook operates and how they know what's going on and uh, and just turn a blind eye to it because they make money off of it. So now governments are feeling increasing pressure to say, OK, we have this massive, massive force running around in society and um, taking a look at what are we going to do how, or how can we try and regulate this in some place? And as I've said before, I don't know if you can regulate the Internet, especially after this has already been out for a number of years. Now to come back and retroactively try and put in safeguards around what's been done, that's what the Internet is. It's it's the Wild West. So it comes down to, I think, 
users getting rid of Facebook and um, users being more critical about the information that they receive. I mean, it, there's no way to stop the flow, and perhaps there shouldn't be. I mean, if we want a completely free and open society, we've got it. Hasn't worked out so well in some ways, um, but that's it comes down to the consumer. You have to be the one. Ultimately, you're the only one with control over this. Governments will try, uh, but I don't think it'll work. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.